This podcast is a shard produced by the miserable death of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions, why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. And I'm Roberto, the host of the History of Sacadavello, Georgia, and the co-host of Czar Power. The former is a deep dive into the history of the not-often-known Caucasus nation of Georgia, not the state. The latter is a Rexipod that reviews and ranks all the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. And this is episode 15. Hot by the Squirrel Nut Zippers. And also 1X by Three Days Grace. Part 2. As reintroduced last time, we're doing an epic crossover event the likes of which the world has never seen before, where I review an album sent to me by Roberto, and vice versa. In our last episode, we went over how the send-or of the albums came to acquire the album, and also discussed the physical form of the CD packaging. And today, we are going to actually go into our reviews of the albums, and I'm going to kick us off with my discussion of HOT by Squirrel Nut Zippers. All right, so Ben, this one really hurt my stomach to research uh, because squirrel nut zippers are a type of caramel candy that are both a chewy caramel and are mixed with peanuts. They were originally invented by the Austin T. Merrill Company of Roxbury, Massachusetts in 1890. I don't know why we're rating candy, but finding some of these proved very expensive and they hurt my teeth and hurt my stomach. Um, the company moved around the U.S. for a few years from North Carolina in 1903, and then from 1915 to 1989, they went to Cambridge, and then finally to McKinney, Texas, where they stayed until 04, and went back to Massachusetts at that time. And however, the company that bought them at the time, Neko, went out of business, and squirrel nut zippers are no longer a kind of candy. That was all very interesting, Roberto, but um, we're, we're here to review the band, not the candy. Oh, okay. Okay. That's my bad. So, the Squirrel Nut Zippers were founded in North Carolina in 1993 by James Jimbo Mathis and his then-wife, Catherine Whalen. Whalen? 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 I, I went with Whalen, but uh, I don't know. Is it, like cool, is it like Cool Whip? You know, you say the cool. Whip? <laughs> cool Whip? <laughs> with Catherine Whalen. Yeah. They were joined by Tom Maxwell, Chris Phillips, Don Rayleigh, Don Raleigh, and Ken Mosher. You know, some of these names are hard to pronounce because I just read them as they are. Yeah, that's fine. They decided to get together to just play music and in an air of whimsy, decided to name themselves after a candy or in a very Southern kind of thing after a very intoxicated man who climbed a tree and refused to climb down said tree. That made the news with the headline, Squirrel Nut Zipper, since a nut zipper is a southern term for a type of boot-like moonshine. That must be a southern colonial thing, because I've never heard anything like that in Texas. So, I guess that's not my south. <laughs> Anyways, they released their first album, The Inevitable Squirrel Nut Zippers, in 1995 on a hometown label, where they played an eclectic old-style jazz but with an underground rock vibe, as 
they were all used to because they a lot of them had a punk rock underground rock style. This music style combined with Waylon's voice, Mathis's interest in the blues, and Maxwell's guitar playing made for a pretty good combination of music. And Maxwell has some pretty good riffs around here and there, and he's he's also the one who wrote the song Hot, which no, the the song Hell, which made this which made them burst into the scene. But that album took off and the band was asked to play one of their songs, a prairie home companion for the Summer Olympics in Atlanta in 1996, which is pretty rad. Their popularity skyrocketed so much that the band decided to make a partnership agreement four days before releasing their album, Hot. Now keep that partnership agreement in mind. That doesn't sound like it's going to cause any problems. (laughs) Oh, not at all, Ben. Not at all. (laughs) Now, let me tell you what this partnership is, because I kind of do like the legalese about it. Mm -hmm. So... The partnership called for profits and losses to be split amongst the seven band members equally, and they would settle any dispute through arbitration, thus removing the need for lawsuits, because no need to sue somebody, right? <laughs> <laughs> it also had provisions about split income from publishing anything amongst all the band members, not the songwriters. So, uh, publishing rights to us to music... That would never cause issues, will it? Nope. <laughs> so now, um, before I continue on, when you see publishing rights come into play, just imagine this dark shadow looming in on the background, <laughs> just kind of saying, yep, yep, just taking over everything. However, at the time, the band wasn't used to being in a spotlight too much and making loads of money, and Maxwell was quoted as saying, quote, publishing? What's that? Let's just split it up. It seemed like everyone should have a stake in that. Otherwise, otherwise, the one asshat makes an obscene amount of money and everyone feels resentful. End quote. Everything changed when the new album Squirrel Nut Zippers released. Hot. The subject of today's episode came out, released. You know what? It came out in July of 1996, a month after I was born. <laughs> this album is as old as I am. Yep. <laughs> Their song, Hell, made them explode and add them to the ever-growing neo-swing genre. So that's kind of the, that's the genre they're in. It's neo-swing, technically. Now, they became so popular that they were even playing for President Bill Clinton's inauguration. Which makes absolutely perfect sense to me, since he was kind of the jazz president. You know, he played the sax. Yeah. He did some sax. Along with this newfound popularity, the band also experienced a massive growth in wealth, which will never cause issues. They went from making just a few thousand dollars at different venues in a month to going ahead and making bank at different private corporate functions where they were to get paid about $75,000 for just one event. And even having their music played on commercials, such as one for like, I think it was for Dell. All of this money as for most musicians, was going back to paying for their travel expenses and their equipment. So they were seeing some of it, but not all of it. Because they had to pay, you know, their staff and everything, the roadies, get them on. The 90s was kind of notoriously an era of horrible band contracts. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't remember that. <laughs> How would I? <laughs> Whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. As the notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, more problems. Squirrel Nut Zippers brought in more managers and lawyers into their fray, 
and the ever-greedy entertainment mouse bought the local record label company. Can you guess which mouse that is? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the mouse wanted its money. The band was pressured into releasing a whole new album, which reached number 18 on the Billboard 100, which, you know, isn't that bad, but fell out of favor faster than you can say the band's name. This failure was compounded by the death of Stacy Guess, who was the original trumpet player for the Squirrel Nut Zippers before Hot was recorded. Stacy's drug addictions forced him to leave the band, and he died from an overdose while the Squirrel Nut Zippers were touring in Europe. But here's the thing about having money and being famous. Ben, do you remember how I was talking about the Squirrel Nut Zipper candy earlier? Uh, yeah. So... That was all a reference for just this exact moment because the Squirrel Nut Zippers didn't have a formalized agreement with a candy company or the candy of the same name. So the owner of that company was like, you know, it's a handshake agreement. Sure, you can totally just use our name. You don't have to pay us anything. And, you know, things are fine. However, that owner died. Ah. And then this company that owned the Squirrel Nut Zipper Candy was bought by a new owner. And, you know, seeing the success that they had from the Hot album, they could smell the dollars and coins from miles away. This is why you don't do business with the Yankees on a handshake. (laughs) Anyways, the Southern Style Nuts, which was the company's name, sued the band. And with this first lawsuit, the doors were opened and another one came right in. This time from a former manager of the band named Mike Renault, who then sued Squirrel Nut Zippers after being dismissed from working for them. And he said that they never paid him his money. So these lawsuits were settled out of court. So we never got to see what, how much exactly was paid out to both of them. But I guess they just didn't want to deal with the, co- with the courts, as you can see from the former arbitration. Right. But, you know, this was too stressful for a few members of the band, such as Maxwell and Mosher, who then quit Squirrel Nut Zippers in 1999. Their main reason was that they no longer enjoyed playing music with the band. And I don't blame them because, you know, they're feeling joyless when they have a mouse as their boss. (laughs) Especially when that mouse is like, give me money now! Where's the new top single? I own everything! Maxwell and Moshe were replaced, and a new album, Bedlam Ballroom, released, which did even worse than the previous album did. This was affecting the Squirrel Nut Zipper bottom line, which was still being held up by Hot's album sales. But Maxwell and Moshe noticed that they weren't receiving any income from the band, despite having royalties on all the sales, because guess what the partnership said? Everything was split equally from the proceeds of the band. So they did the right thing. They called up the band and like, hey, guys, you know, give us the money. You owe us money. And the band never picked up their phone calls. They never picked it up. They kept calling people. Nobody answered. And they knew that, you know, they had to do something. And citing the partnership, like, you know, we're not going to sue you because we know you just went through a really bad, like, lawsuit. So we, we just want you to give us back our money. Also, Maxwell was the one who wrote the song Hell. And since that was the most popular song, he wanted one thing back more than anything. His publishing rights. Because <laughs> that's the one thing you don't take away from a creator is their right to publish. Right. So in 2001, 
Maxwell and Mosher filed for arbitration, and they claimed that their partnership agreement had been breached. So they subpoenaed the financial records from Disney, Bug Music, and the then-manager, Eric Sells, and their accountant, Bert Goldstein. The companies complained... Uh, <laughs> the companies complied with the, <laughs> the subpoena, but Sells and Goldstein never gave them anything. Squirrel Nut Zipper's lawyer also refused to comment on the case in general to anybody. And during their investigation of the subpoenaed files, Maxwell and Mosher found out that they had been vastly underpaid for their royalties, and the arbitrator agreed and awarded them around $350,000 to be paid by the other five members of this partnership, and publishing rights were then restored to Maxwell. With control over the most popular song gone, Squirrel Nut Zipper's finances started to deplete. And Catherine Whalen is quoted as saying, you know, she was confused about where all the money had disappeared to during their time because they had so much of it, and now it was just all gone in just two to three years. Now, despite all of this, things were becoming undone for the band. The founders, Jimbo Mathis and Catherine Whalen, were having some domestic issues. Now, we don't know if it was any of the violent kind, but... We know that they were both used to being on the road quite often, and they had a daughter in 2000 and the year 2000. But around that time, Mathis would just disappear while touring with his other blues band. And one day, while on tour, he never came back. Whalen figured out what was going on and filed for divorce, where Mathis, after the papers were signed, turned around and married another blues singer named Olga Wilhelmine. Around this time, Waylon quit music and started waiting tables until she started recording her own music again. And at that point, the band broke up because the, the, the founders were gone. Nobody wanted to do anything anymore. You know, the, between the divorce, the lawsuits, not having any money left, and it was donezo. Score Nut Zippers, officially completo. Right. The band would get back together for a reunion starting around 2007, and... Once again, for 2016, for the 20th anniversary of Hot, where they, and then they started touring again with a revival band. They just replaced all the other musicians, except for Jimbo Mathis, with musicians from the Nolans area. They they continued to tour, and they've produced two new albums called Beast of Burgundy and The Lost Songs of Doc Sushon. I think they're pretty good, but they haven't been active since COVID, and Mathis is also involved with other works at the same time. So this is all information that I got from the News and Observer website, which is written by Dave David Minconi, because it's pretty hard to find information on this band because they were pretty much a one-hit wonder, if I'm being honest. So I just went with the one thing that actually had more than just a, they recorded the album Hot, and that's it. It's like, here's actually when to like, oh, here's all the stuff they did. But that's about, this is about the them. So the Musical Candy documentary, that is just straight up a propaganda, Ben. Straight up propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, look at look at how great we are. You know, shows a picture, you know, a clip of Waylon and Mathis. Like, oh, look, we just came up together and we just fell in love and things were great. And I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. Bless your hearts. And then it's like, but then you get the whole, but then everything changed when the Mathis nation attacked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that it was filmed like right before everything. Like at that time, they may have been being honest, but like... It, it was like this this weird bit of, you know, they, they were showing everyone's 
falling down uh, shacks in the southern rural countryside <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and everything, but they were all very interested in their art and everything. And, uh, you know, and, but it was just, yeah, knowing what we know about what, what happened with the band, it was just like, like you said, like this looming shadow over the entire thing. Yeah, it's just like, we we know something bad's going to happen because they made a partnership agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I have more to say about them, but let's uh, let's save it towards the end. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, you uh, go ahead and talk about my CD now. I am intrigued to Ben. Okay. I, I will judge you harshly if you say anything bad about it. <laughs> Uh, I, we laugh, but... Uh, okay, for me to properly describe this album and my reactions to it, we're going to have to talk about metal. Given the context of this episode as a crossover, I'm very tempted to skim this, but uh, looking through my record collection in my brain, because it's all still in boxes, I'm actually not sure if we are going to be covering any metal albums for... at all. Uh, So, apologies. Some discussion is definitely needed, and um, as usual, my, my ignoring this genre is not intentional. Uh, them's the bricks when you inherit your entire record collection from a random roommate of one of your former work colleagues. Anyway, in contrast to my recent discussion about jam bands, where the origins of the genre are extremely clear, the origins of heavy metal are extremely obscure and very contested. Obviously, metal happened. Most observers agree about that. And most observers also agree that it happened in the 70s at some point. But beyond that, it's really very difficult to pin down a singular starting point. It doesn't help that, like jazz, metal has gone through some major phases and has dozens of subgenres, which can make it very hard to pin down what metal even is. From a historical perspective, we can point to a few key early influences and an important context, namely all the positive, happy, hippie folk vibes in rock around the 1970s. The rise of drug culture and the influence of art school had further developed the rock of this era into psychedelic rock, a genre we will definitely be covering at some point, but this was something of a divergence point. Psychedelic rockers like Jerry Garcia were more interested in the art of their craft than making something commercially viable. But while Jerry Garcia stayed in the sort of happy hippie realm, but just became more experimental, Other psychedelic rockers began increasingly dark explorations of their craft, admitting that they probably weren't going to stop the war and stuff by just living moral lives, and that they didn't really feel good about that all the time, and that their art could be allowed to reflect that. Obviously, drugs helped. Uh, If you want an interesting look at one of uh, an early typecase of this, this darker psychedelic rock genre, check out the 13th Floor Elevators. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes. At the same time that psychedelic rockers were discovering that they were allowed to be angry, a related conclusion was being reached in the UK by a fairly diverse group of artists. They had had their fill of the pretentiousness of the 
hippie rock era and its skin-deep attempts at political rhetoric calculated to catch headlines but not interfere with record sales. As much a fashion trend as a musical genre, these artists donned gender-ambiguous outfits that were colorful, decadent, and often intentionally aesthetically shocking. Meanwhile, the music was stripped back to simple 1950s rock and roll song structures. These intentionally outrageous artists were criticized as mere glam rockers, a label that came to describe yet another genre, which definitely needs its own episode. So we've got psychedelic rock turning dark, we've got glam rockers, and then Led Zeppelin. Many people say they are the first metal band, despite a huge percentage of their music sounding like it belonged in my episode about Scottish folk band Alba. I'm not an expert on Zeppelin. Uh, maybe I'll have David Crowther come on to discuss that someday. But for our purposes, suffice it to say that they were very influenced by English Romanticism. They were extremely talented as musicians and songwriters, were interested in folk traditions of music, but were not af afraid to play heavy rock and roll under the influence of these new darker psychedelic rock uh, genres that were percolating through. Their lyrics are notable for being very wide-ranging in their influences, including songs about historical events and fantasy stories. These three disparate genres of glam rock, dark psychedelic rock, and Led Zeppelin gradually came together in a few places across the Anglophone world, as well as along the U.S.-Mexican border, and gradually coalesced into what we would now recognize as metal. So, what is metal? I've given the historical answer to that question. What is the sort of structural and sonic and aesthetic answer to that question? Metal, according to the internet, is characterized generally by basic blues rock and roll song structures, but with a huge amount of emphasis on musical virtuosity as expressed in classical guitar-type melodic structures. In line with the romantic tradition, metal attempts to askew elitism while also valorizing skill. Metal guitarists are often praised for their ability to shred, which Wikipedia describes as, quote, fast alternate picking, sweet picked arpeggios, diminished in harmonic scales, finger tapping, and whammy bar abuse, end quote. In layman's terms, they play a lot of notes as fast as possible, usually in a conventional scale taken from classical music. So structurally, we're looking at songs where someone is doing a 12-bar blues song and then suddenly starts playing Spanish classical guitar. But, you know, fast, and with a lot of bass <laughs> Speed in general in metal is usually rewarded, though monster ballads are an exception, and the development of alt-rock changed a lot in this regard, as we will discuss shortly. The music tends to be dark in a minor key, with a lot of screening. There are a lot of tensions within metal that help explain the numerous subgenres, and that relate to everything I just said. For example... Some metal fans emphasize talent in the classical sense, as I just mentioned, and prefer clean presentations without distortion. In this version of metal, screaming is often somewhat limited to make way for classically appealing vocals, particularly in the verses. Other metal fans emphasize speed, anger, and emotional intensity, and so they enjoy bands with lots of distortion and screaming. Bands that are anywhere along these spectrums can earnestly call themselves metal bands and have a long tradition of bands to reference. Arguments about this abound, though I will say that today a common technique is to have a clean, relatively slow verse, with lots of undistorted noodling and pretty singing, then punctuated by heavy distortion and scream-filled choruses. The contrast between the two styles drives a lot of the appeal of such songs, and honestly is the basis of the careers of more than a few bands. 
Evanescence Tool and Ginger popped to the top of my head as examples. Again, links in the show notes. Wake me up inside. <laughs> yeah, wake up. And now, a brief post-foundational history of metal. Apologies if I miss your favorite band or genre here. The real point is to get us to the 90s and aughts as fast as possible with proper context. The 70s era metal bands are the classics that most people associate with the genre. Black Sabbath, Alice Cooper, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. Glam metal took over the mainstream of both metal itself and the pop music charts in the 1980s when you had bands like Kiss, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, and Poison. In the background, Motorhead had mixed metal with punk and sped things up substantially, leading eventually to the development of thrash metal, which would take over the metal space towards the end of the 80s with bands like Metallica. If you let me pick my favorite metal genre, it would be thrash metal, though don't quiz me, metal in general is not my genre. In the late 80s, a weird thing happened, and thrash metal had a lot to do with it. Basically, punks and fans of thrash metal had spent the last decade sort of occupying the same spaces. In terms of ideology, the two genres are similar, and musically they both tend to favor anger and heavy music, though they do it in markedly different ways. In practical terms, the land of the $5 cover charge basement show is very likely to bring in both punks and metalheads. Often the two genres hated each other, as groups of angry young men are wont to do, but just as often there was a lot of cross-pollination. You see this on the punk side with the direction taken by hardcore punk in this period, especially with acts like the Rollins Band. On the metal side, as I said, the entire thrash metal genre was focused on speeding things up to make things more intense and fun and angry, something that came from exposure to punk bands. But in Seattle, there was a very special subsection of this whole scene, where the punks and the metalheads were also stuck in very close quarters with the post-punk art rock acts of the indie scene, essentially the descendants of new wave bands that had stuck to their principles. If you put these three genres together in a city where it rains 300 days out of the year and no one has anything to do but drink coffee, do drugs, and play music, you end up with Nirvana eventually. So grunge is a metal subgenre, and a punk subgenre, and an indie subgenre. You'd think I would like it more. And it's my favorite genre. You're not alone. And to be fair, I do love Nirvana and the related Seattle bands and non-Seattle indie bands that influenced them, which is to say the Pixies, Sonic Youth, etc. But what became the grunge genre was ultimately defined by others' bands, uh, like Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. The story of Nirvana is notoriously and tragically short, and in many ways just served to blow up the existing metal and pop charts while leaving the creation of a new thing that filled the void to Kurt Cobain's arguably less talented fellow travelers. Cough, Eddie Vedder, cough. <laughs> Grunge dominated the pop and rock charts for only a few years before fading, but in that time it changed metal. The hair metal bands were now old-fashioned, seen as too vapid by many. Thrash metal continued, but mainly as a subgenre with its own devoted following that didn't really impact the charts that much. What came next that actually impact, impacted the pop charts was the rise of new metal. Now, let's get back to definitions. New metal is, it should be said, one of those terms that's come to be used inappropriately. Strictly speaking, new metal was originally applied to all the rap metal bands that became popular in the mid to late 90s. So Korn, Limp Bizkit, uh, Rage Against the Machine, and Sugar Ray. You heard me. Look up the early stuff. <clears throat> anyway, a new metal in terms of rap metal was just part of a larger ongoing project within metal to blend it with other genres. Grunge was part of that project, but you also need to look at Faith No More, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Primus as part of a larger ongoing experiment uh, in metal circles with 
cosmopolitan songwriting. And if there was ever a decade that rewarded genre surfing, it was the 90s. Audiences were open to new things, and record executives were in a money and cocaine-fueled frenzy of finding talent, sucking them dry of their authenticity, and then making them into the next one-hit wonder. Swing, ska, jazz, all got moments in the 90s spotlight. Such as hot. There you go. So in the metal world, efforts to blend metal with other genres were rewarded with major crossover success. In the 90s, most of it, this was mostly in terms of rat metal living under the new metal umbrella, but there were other acts like Mudvayne, Stained, and most notoriously Nickelback that brought influences from other rock genres, notably grunge. Let's call this wider umbrella of blended metal acts alternative metal, or alt metal, though you can also call it mull metal if you'd like. As the more rap rock acts fell out of fashion in the early aughts, much of the slack in the pop charts ended up being taken up by these alt metal acts, which were very influenced by grunge, and which sounded like... Well, let me go back to grunge for a second. Musically, what grunge did as a genre, and I'm generalizing here, it was in some ways it slowed things down. Kurt Cobain used the lower tempo to focus on songwriting and pop hooks. Eddie Vedder used it to deliver indecipherable lyrics about the Green Party. Soundgarden did a lot of drugs. But in all cases, there was a use of slower tempo combined with minor key music. To make it clear that this wasn't pop music, heaven forbid, the bands tended to emphasize uh, heavy bass, but also the mid, as opposed to just the bass and treble ends of the music. The result was big sounds, but you could describe it as ponderous and muddy. There were often pop hooks and interesting lyrics buried in there, but sometimes it was hard to tell especially if Eddie Vedder was singing. And there was very little shredding, barely any soloing at all. Well, Ben, legend states that this slowdown was because of all the heroin they were taking. (laughs) That is certainly a theory. Although I will just say that for Kurt Cobain, uh, pop songwriting seems to have been a really big part of what he was doing. So, these alternative metal bands kept the simple pop-influenced song structures, they kept the minor key, and they kept the ponderous muddy sound. To make sure everyone knew this was still a metal band, they wore lots of black clothes with metal studs from Hot Topic, and also denim because punks and emos did the black and black thing and metal thing, but only metal kids did the Canadian tuxedo. By the time you got into the aughts, many of these bands had mohawks and had ditched the denim, meaning they were basically dressing like punks at this point, and they didn't shred, and their music sounded like a gray box labeled rock. And eventually, people started to complain. Okay, okay, okay. What is a Canadian tuxedo? (laughs) You need to explain this thing to me. Okay. A Canadian tuxedo is when you're wearing an outfit entirely made of denim. Ah, that makes sense. I'll I'll talk to Brie about that. Denim jacket, denim pants, uh, denim shirt under your denim jacket. Yeah. I love it. So, well, again, while we're while we're doing asides, a uh, quick aside on fashion. Podcast footnote. This was timely when I wrote the script. Uh, but anyway, punk has always been as much about the ethos and the fashion as about the music. And no one exemplified that convergence more than Vivian Westwood. Her estranged husband may have been a combination of a cartoon villain and a used car salesman, but she was the real thing. And unfortunately, she passed earlier this year. She will be missed. End podcast footnote. Anyway. If you listen to the critics, everyone has always hated new metal and alternative metal. More traditional metal acts lined up around the block to tell rock journalists how much they hated Limp Bizkit and Nickelback. Obviously, I absolutely despise these bands, but let's be clear. They were objectively extravagantly popular. 
If you wanted to listen to something other than bubblegum pop and boy bands in the late 90s, and you didn't have direct access to the musical underground, you were listening to new metal. It's all the rock stations played. Well, it was 50% safe classic 70s metal and 50% new metal. And this made its way onto the pop stations as well. What's so wrong with Nickelback? (laughs) I'll get to that. Partly this was just a formatting choice being pushed on us by Clear Channel, and partly this was the hard rock demographic getting increasingly parochial. And it's not like the record companies had a ton of incentives to invest heavily in Indian punk artists that actively despised them. But at the end of the day, Nickelback remains one of the best-selling artists of all time. I owned albums by Korn, Limp Bizkit, and Papa Roach, and I will cop to having some things about them I still definitely like, particularly Papa Roach. I always felt they had more going on than they got credit for. To this day, I find things to like about Alien Ant Farm, SR-71, and Oleander, and I will say that I still genuinely enjoy listening to Power Man 5000 and Incubus. Glorious weirdos all. So people listened, and it was popular. And as much as there were larger forces at work, there was also an aesthetic experience here that resonated with a lot of people, including me to at least some extent, and definitely including Roberto. And now I have to try and explain why that is the case, despite new Metal being the punchline to every rock and roll joke since 2003. Our band today, Three Days Grace, is an alternative metal band from Canada, which started way back in the early 90s as a high school band with a different name in Norwood, Ontario. Norwood, as far as I can tell, is basically Letterkenny. If you don't know Letterkenny, pause this and go look up clips on YouTube. Basically, the show is about a bunch of um, Canadian people living in a rural area and being hilarious. Um, It's amazing. It's amazing. I laughed my ass (laughs) off watching it. And I recommend it to everybody. Just watch Letterkenny. You won't regret it. Some episodes are just really weird. Yes. But get get through those, and it's still freaking hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, as high school bands are wont to do, they broke up after graduation in 1997. Unlike most high school bands, most of the core members found their way to the big city, Toronto in this case, and reformed as Three Days Grace. In Toronto, they managed to strike up a relationship with a local music producer, Gavin Brown, who went through all the material they'd compiled over the years, picked out the best bits, and that became their direction as a band. They put together a demo, which got some traction with EMI Canada, who asked them to put together more material. This effort resulted in their first big single, I Hate Everything About You, which led to a bidding war, and they were eventually signed by a major label. Podcast footnote. Okay, I would like to take a moment here to discuss one of the larger forces at work in this story, and it's kind of a 300-pound gorilla in this room, uh, notably the juggernaut that is Canadian music. In short, the bizarre commonality of Canadian artists in the United States pop charts is not an accident. This is because on January 18, 1971, the MAPL system came into effect in Canada as a result of a combination of legislation and regulatory changes. The MAPL system requires that 30% of the content on Canadian radio and TV stations meet the following requirements. M. Music. The music is composed entirely by a Canadian. A. Artist. The music is, or the lyrics are, performed principally by a Canadian. P. Performance. The musical selection consists of a performance that is recorded wholly in Canada or performed wholly in Canada and broadcast live in Canada. L. Lyrics. The lyrics are written entirely by a Canadian. Which is to say that Canadian TV and radio stations are required to devote 30% of their airtime to Canadian-made content. 
Now, hopefully I don't need to go into too much detail as to why a country sitting next to the United States and composed primarily of permafrost might feel the need to protect its domestic cultural production. The result, however, has been an interesting experiment in soft power exports. The MAPL system guarantees that if a Canadian artist is in any way good, they have at least some potential to get attention from mass media companies struggling to fill their required time. However, the Canadian market is, at the end of the day, pretty small, so the managers and record companies all ultimately want these artists to cross over into the American market to justify the production expenses. As a result, if the goal of the legislation was to preserve uniquely Canadian cultural production, it didn't really work, because the Canadian artists definitely have a real pipeline to success that in many ways supports the Canadian music industry, but the Canadian artists are also always working with an eye on making it in the States, adapting their work towards that end. This is, one, a really interesting economics and public policy case study, two, why we as Americans have had the joy of living through Rush, Willie Nelson. Brian Adams, Shania Twain, Alanis Morissette, Celine Dion, Nickelback, The Bare Naked Ladies, Billy Talent, Nellie Furtado, Avril Lavigne, Michael Buble, Drake, The Weeknd, Shawn Mendes, and Justin Bieber, amongst others. So thanks for that, you commie protectionist scum. And podcast footnote. As I was saying, Three Days Grace were signed by a major label, and they inevitably moved to Massachusetts finished turning their demos and material into an album, released it in 2003, and began the touring. After several years of touring, the lead singer, Adam Gautier, had developed a teensy bit of an Oxycontin addiction, checked himself into rehab, and began writing songs about the experience. After his release, the band moved to a sled shack upcountry where, presumably surrounded by degens, they crafted their second album from this material. That second album is the one of the focuses of today's episode, 1X. But before I talk about that album and the rest of their career, I have already been talking for a while, so I'm going to go get myself a Puppers and a one-inch thick top sirloin steak, salt and pepper heavily, grill at 400, four minutes total, flip each minute to get the good grill marks, let's sit for two minutes, down the hatch. While I do that, Roberto will finish telling you about Hot by the Scroll Nut Zippers. Um, now I'm feeling very hungry, Ben, and I'm blaming you for this. And I just ate Taco Bell, so I know, like, I cannot have any more food. Um, well, I, I gotta say, when I was hesitant about the, the album when Ben told me the name of the band and the name of the album, and he just didn't want to tell me anything else. He was like, just listen to it. Don't look them up. Nothing. Just listen first and then do your thing. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And, you know, I sat on it for weeks, months, years. <laughs> we we planned this 15 years ago, and it's finally coming out. <laughs> um, no, it's, this has been in the works for a bit. Um, but I'm a very busy person. Anyways, I did sit and listen to the album. And honestly... I got like big bad voodoo daddies and the Brian Seltzer Orchestra vibes from Scornut Zippers. And for me, I was like, this is pretty cool because I actually like jazz. I know Ben has comments on that, but I will sit down and listen to different kinds of jazz willingly. Um, and this is a great blend of like jazz, swing, blues, rock and roll. And in a sense, the more I listen to it, the more I vibe with it. And of course, Bad Businessman and Hell were my favorite songs off this album. Um, and it was fun. 
And of course, as I said earlier, unlike Ben, I can actually sit down and enjoy multiple forms of jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it is the predominant form of music that I listen to, along with grunge, post-grunge, and classical music. Anyways, back to Squirrel Nut Zippers. So the music is a nice eclectic mix of blues that you'll find down in Mississippi, and it has some nice swingy overtones. I'd honestly say that if you just want something to listen to and just vibe along with or just have something in a background, it's fun. It's not a big distractor. It's actually the kind of music I like listening to at like clubs and all that when I do go to jazz clubs. because That's kind of the stuff like, yeah, I want something in the background that I can listen to. I can tune in and enjoy the band playing, but still hear my friends talk because that's the biggest thing. I like going to places and hearing my friends. If I can't hear my friends. It's not a good place. It could also just be the neurodivergency kicking in. Um, so, Ben, to, you know, to, kudos to you because I've actually added this album to my study playlist shuffle. Great. So, um, and I will keep listening to it, and it has popped up a few times since I told you I was going to actually write down the stuff after listening to this. And, um, yeah, so, even though I'm not going to go into a huge tirade about hot because... You know, I, don't, I have nothing bad to say about it other than, you know, my thoughts about what happened with the scandal. But we'll talk about that later. Um, but that's how I feel about Hot, Ben. Uh, telling me your opinions about One X and how amazing of an album it is and how it changed your life and how you're only going to sit through his grace from now on. Thanks, Roberto. I, I have to admit, my first impression when listening to this album was that it was kind of generic. The term mall rock came to mind. On subsequent listens, I think that impression was unfair, if not entirely wrong. Sure, Three Days Grace is an alternative metal band from Canada, just like Nickelback, but they are way better than Nickelback. Nickelback is the musical equivalent of being forced to chug a big gulp cup of brown gravy made from a package. Three Days Grace is more like a big bowl of Campbell's chicken soup. Maybe it's not the first thing I would order, but it's recognizable as food, and not like an unfinished ingredient. So, I understand why Roberto likes it. Three Days Grace at least has a clear genre. They definitely have talent as songwriters and performers. And to get beyond that, let me get into specifics. The standout tracks on the album are, unsurprisingly, the big three singles, Pain, Animal I Have Become, and Never Too Late. I will also add the track Riot and the title track to that list. Of these, Animal I Have Become is my personal favorite at the moment of writing. The reason I like it is pretty simple. It's the fastest. And Duncan is joining us. As I discussed earlier, metal has a reputation of being hard and fast, but often that is achieved by slowing down the rhythm section to allow the guitarist to shred. And then there's everything I said before about grunge and that that influence. Alt metal as a rule tones down the shredding, but without necessarily speeding up everything else. This tends to make the music in general kind of a big distorted tone color background, for the vocals. Three Days Grace is hardly the worst defender in the genre, but that's definitely something going on here. This puts a lot of importance on the quality of the vocals and the lyrics. Indeed, Gautier's vocals and lyrics are often a thing commented on positively by critics and fans, and I will say I like his delivery. It's haggard and pained, very expressive. The vocals are an extremely welcome bit of humanity in what is otherwise an excessively clean production. It's not at all surprising to me to learn that the band was given direction by a producer and that that producer is still doing their albums to this day. Subject-wise, the lyrics are a little obvious to me, 
but they have the benefit of being direct and relatable. Rather than coming up with elaborate emotional metaphors, as I might, Gautier just says, I'd rather feel pain than nothing at all. And while that's a little too on the nose for me, that can be directly relatable for someone going through some hard times. I think that gets to the crux of how I feel about this album. I can relate to feeling angry and wanting to scream and express unhappiness and despair with a situation. I'm not generally a happy person. Given how things have been going along with my house, you know, very same, Adam. For someone coming from a background where the baseline assumption is that everything has to be fine and expressing your emotions is frowned upon, this permission to just feel must feel very powerful. For kids in particular, this is definitely going to be relatable, given how stressed out parents often don't want to hear it and don't validate how tough childhood can feel. I certainly understand the attraction of angry music. If I can yeah. butt in here, especially coming from a very Hispanic household where it's very toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. expressing emotions isn't a big thing. So you can see why this hit emotionally for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got it. I get it. But... This isn't really describing me, (laughs) and this is my aesthetic take on the album. While emotional repression is just part of living in a society at some level, and while I am swimming in the same uh, pigsty with everyone else in terms of toxic masculinity and things like that, my parents were great about giving me structure while also basically validating my sense of self-worth. Also, like my mom would regularly read me Victorian literature when I was in elementary school. I grew up in a world suffused by wordplay and art. So for me, I want, I need a little bit more than I just feel X way. This isn't to say what I like is better or more sophisticated. It's just where I'm coming from. If record sales are anything to go by, I am the weirdo because Three Days Grace has consistently moved hundreds of thousands of records, while my favorite hard rock act, Future of the Left, can't even afford to tour at this point. Ultimately, how you feel about this album is going to be related to how you feel about alt-metal in general. The album does all the alt-metal things. There are songs where the verses are acoustic, and then the choruses are heavily distorted electric guitars. There's a few songs where the bridge is an excuse to do a solo with lots of shredding. I tend to like these more. The track Riot is particularly good as a nod to the idea that this is a metal band. As one would expect, given the background of this album and Gautier's drug addiction experience, There's a lot about pain and grappling with personal traumas and feelings of worthlessness, but it's all presented in a straightforward manner that would be highly relatable to any listener who had had some hard times, even if it's not an Oxycontin addiction. Where the album differentiates itself is in its story and in Gautier's delivery. Technically, the music is perfect, and the songwriting serves what Gautier is trying to do, but it doesn't go much beyond those basics. Given the scorn I poured on Alan and the Alligators uh, last episode, you could see this as a bit of a burn, but it's not meant that way, not this time. Three Days Grace doesn't seem to have any pretension of being anything beyond a highly successful new metal band, and they entirely lack the smug undertones of jam bands, so I don't mind them as much. You could say basically the same things about Alba, my, the Scottish band from a few episodes back. I really liked Alba, but it's not like they shaped my perception of reality. A band that is from a genre, which is very good at being from that genre, may not attain greatness or artistic perfection, but that kind of achievement is rare and going for it can make you look worse than you are. For people who like a genre, having a band be very good at being from that genre will give those people, who are, after all, the main audience, a highly enjoyable experience. They may even be their favorite band. And that's absolutely okay. 
I'm allowed to like generic third revival Scottish folk bands, and the people who like alt metal are allowed to like Three Days Grace. As long as they don't like Nickelback. Or worse, the war crime that is Puddle of Mud. To finish the story of Three Days Grace, the band has subsequently released five more albums, and continues to record and tour today. Uh, but let me fill in a few more details. 2009's Life Starts Now has been described as more optimistic than the previous two albums. One gets the feeling that Gautier was riding the high of his new sobriety and success. 2013's Transit of Venus was supposed to be a really big new direction for the band. There was a very intensive online promotional effort, tying in with the once-in-a-lifetime astronomical event in the title, the titular Visible Transit of Venus Across the Sun, which was going to occur that year. A ton of buzz had been built up, and the band was all set to go on a co-headlining tour when Adam Gautier abruptly quit the band, saying he was ready for a new direction. No real explanation has ever been given, apart from the fact that apparently the band was as surprised by this as everyone else. I think if I add a few more details, we can get a clearer picture of what happened. Gautier also got divorced that year, and has sub subsequently said that he went through a mental health crisis in 2015 and checked himself back into rehab. One suspects that the 2015 event probably started, maybe in 2013, and either caused him to quit the band and get divorced, or else quitting the band and getting divorced caused him to unwind. Either way, it seems like he went through two years of some pretty bad stuff. He remarried after getting out of rehab in 2015, and has built up a career as a solo artist. Not much material has been published, but he tours every now and again. He seems comfortable, and I hope this more relaxed relationship with his career has been good for his mental health. Contrary to what you might think, losing the frontman and songwriter a week before starting a major tour seemed to have really phased the rest of the band. They brought in a new singer, the bassist's brother as it happens, and went on tour. They have put out three more albums since 2013, including as recently as 2021, and they continue to work. They've become a solid and reliable presence in the rock and roll charts, and are regularly cited as a modern type specimen of mainstream alt-metal bands. And, for my from my take in terms of this album, I enjoyed listening to it. They were fine. As a person writing a script, I sort of wish there was more to talk about here, but as an artistic person and as a fan of music, it always makes me happy when one of the bands I talk about on this show manages to get up to the present, still making money as working musicians, and with an extant career. In real life, dramatic stories are not actually pleasant to experience, and so for the sake of the people involved, I'm kind of glad they seem to be able to function as professionals, doing their job, and making a career out of something that they presumably enjoy. Of course, the fact that they have careers indicates that their fans are also happy to support that career, presumably because hearing their music and seeing their shows makes them happy as well. And good for all of them. So, let's have... Let's, did we miss anything? Let's have a little bit of a discussion here. Um, okay. Did so, I miss anything about three days? Did you miss anything about squirrel nut zippers? Well, um, I guess you'll be able to. You can correct me on squirrel nut zippers and give more insight into the scandal, I guess. But um, yeah, after three after Adam Gautier left the band, um, it was a really tough time for me because um. When I mean I, I was a fanboy, I mean, like, I mean, I was a fanboy. The Transit of Venus album came out, and I memorized the whole thing in, like, a day. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. And then I literally, I think I got to see them, like, because they were performing for, in Houston four days after the album came out. So I, had, I was like, I need to memorize the whole album before so I could sing along. 
Um, and I got to meet, and I, um, and in previous, during the Life Starts Now tour, or one of them, I got to meet the band as well. So that was like, fanboy me was able to, I, I, I kind of cried. I cried. <laughs> I cried beating at, like out of Gautier and everybody. Um, so that, that was for me. Was, to me, like through his grace is like a big emotional thing, part of my life. Cause uh-huh. I still, I still, I can still listen to the first four albums and like feel things. Um, and it reminds me of like high school and like middle school and all that. And like the things I went through then and how things are better now. Um, but I did see the band with Matt Walst after Adam Gautier left. Sure. I think it was a year after. And, you know, it was okay. Like, they're, they're fine. Um, I My personal opinion is that the New Three is Grace just sounds a lot more mainstream than they used to. Because um, Matt Walst is from my, or was from my darkest days. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, you know, I hope he's filling in. I hope they find someone else, but apparently not. Um, like he's like he's okay. Yeah. But um, Adam, you know, you can't replace Adam Gautier because he actually had like a very recognizable voice. Um, yeah, his vocal delivery was really the, yeah the, the whole thing. I it, it really was. So now that, that changed, I just kind of stopped listening to them as much. So I was still listening to like the Adam, Adam Gautier things, but he does have a new band called Saint Asonian. They've released three albums recently that are, and it has a, you know, it's a, it's a super band. It has, okay. you know, members from like Stained. It has him. I forget the other guys, but it has other band members and they're actually really good. You can still hear the three days grace stuff. And when he was touring for the first, um, Saint Asonia album, um, he still played the old three days grace songs because he saw his publishing rights as a songwriter. Right. Which, hey, publishing rights makes a comeback. <laughs> um, weird deal with the bandmates. <laughs> yeah, so he he can still play, he still plays those songs and actually actually I think it was like last week he actually just popped in for, on one of their tours for I think their their touring with Shinedown for Three Days Graces and he Adam Gautier just popped in and sang a few songs with the band and everybody was like excited and it's like is he coming back? It's like no, he's just doing this for fun yeah. as he can. Yeah. Um it's always but fun. yeah, it's 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 a fun like I I don't know like I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mild, you know you you had some sense of enjoyment from it. Yeah, because um, yeah. I, I know that's you know you know their earlier stuff can be seen as oh they're trying to get in and all that. But I think the biggest comment was also that from what I could tell at the time when news was coming in when the split happened was that it was also like a falling out with the record label too because all the music oh, yeah. was just sounding too generic and then. You know the whole thing with the divorce and maybe like mental health issues coming up to the, uh, up to the fray may not have helped because um, Three's Grace was known for releasing on a three year schedule consistently and also um, choosing the same track albums for their for their singles. So it's always two, three, four, six, which is two is pain and one X, two is pain, three is I've become, four is never too late, and six is riot. So like. Those are the singles, and it has been the exact same way until Transit of Venus. <laughs> That's just painting yourself into a corner. <laughs> yeah. So basically, when, when I saw the new, when the Life Starts Now came out, I'm like, oh, it's two, three, four, six. And guess what? Were the singles for Life Starts Now two, three, four, six. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, so that's that's just kind of like my end thing. Unless you have something more you want to like know more about Three Is Grace, because 
I'm a font. I'm a font of knowledge up until 2013, unless it involves Adam Gautier. No, no. Um, okay. <laughs> so, in in terms of scroll nut zippers, uh, there's there's sort of two things I wanted to add to uh, to the context, I guess, of what you said. One is the the context of the swing revival, which sort of you touched on a bunch, but um, the the interesting question for me in terms of the scroll nut zippers is how do they actually fit into that? Because the the swing revival kind of came out of um, the the rockabilly scene. Um, a, a lot of the the big names in uh, in the swing revival were originally like in the eighties. They were big in the rockabilly revival, <laughs> and the the two two scenes are, are kind of very much related and uh, scroll nut zippers is very different uh, and they sound different uh, to mm-hmm. me anyway. They, you know, they, they have a background working in punk and rock bands like, yeah, but um, that hot just sounds like nothing else. It is a weird, like it, it sounds like it came in. It, it sounds like someone found a songbook from the 1920s. <laughs> you know, it literally does like, uh, like it sounds like exactly that's kind of that's actually a great way. It's like it sounds like someone found a song from the 1920s. You kept explain, like showcasing the album as people, you know, 1920s aesthetic, but with like modern day vibes. Yeah, it's and it's vibes is the right word because it's it's almost impossible to pin down what it is. It's just an energy about it that's like, um, you know, I guess to me everything looks like a punk rock band, but there, there's an energy about it that just says is very punk to me where it's like this bunch of people living in a bunch of shacks in the South, just <laughs> like got together and put together this music, which is wild and just is very energetic. Um, and then the, the contrast of the other thing is like the contrast of that with then Waylon's performances is hilarious. Like in the documentary, she just looks stoned out of her mind <laughs> probably was she probably yeah. was it's she's from the south of north carolina bud from the sticks <laughs> she probably was the, everyone in the band else in the band is like flailing around and you know playing their instruments and everything and she's just like doing that 1920s like rocking her shoulders staring straight ahead at the back of the hall and uh it, it was wonderful i i thought Oh no! It was, it was a great aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. The one other thing I wanted to bring up that um, really struck me when watching the documentary is, uh, man, these people are white. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're pale white. <laughs> and I, you know, I just don't know enough about the context of that part of the South and. Um, what was going on in the swing scene at the time and any of that to, you know, make any like definitive statement. And they all seem so genuine that like, I can't really accuse them of being like horrible racists or anything like that, but it's just, it seems like there's a there there that I just don't know how to talk about. And that's all I'll say about that. (laughs) And it's, I guess the other thing is with a swing band, I sort of feel the same way about this as I do about like all white ska bands you've got like 19 band members. You couldn't get someone (laughs) like it's a traditionally black, you know, 
genre, you couldn't at least get a bassist or saxophone player or something. Well, <laughs> and even like the the revival band, yeah. um, they're all pretty white too. Yeah. Uh, but, so but and even even being from Nolans, they're all pretty white. Or like I think I may see like one or two Hispanics in there yeah. or three, but like that's also me. Yeah, going based off of how they look like, which isn't empirical data. Yeah, or how they identify themselves. So like, other than that, you know, pretty white. <laughs> yeah, uh, and in, in terms of the revival band, really rubs me the wrong way. Um, I it's. Yeah, uh, Mathis just... Uh, tell, tell me more. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I've watched a couple performances and stuff, and Mathis just seems... Uh, he just seems like someone who's had his, his soul surgically removed from his body. <laughs> I, Must I, have I, happened after he got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Um, yeah, like they're they're doing these songs that he wrote with a bunch of other people that hate him now, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, like his is it is it his wife who's performing his new wife that's performing with them, or was it did he get some? Nope, else? even uh, he got somebody else to perform with them. Yeah, I think yeah. he learned from the first time. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was kind of biting my tongue early in the episode when we were like, uh, marriages between bandmates that always works out great. Oh, I mean, it worked out for Flyleaf. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, all that said, I just want to thank you so much for doing this, because this this whole project was really fun, even if it was like four months in the making. <laughs> I mean, that's just, to be fair, we decided to do this right when I entered my busy seasons of yeah, work. You so entered, You entered your busy season. I, I still didn't have a house. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so we, we, we planned this. Uh, we got it done. It literally all it took was... Oh, actually, I'm not going to do anything else until I get this done. And then it was turned out in a single day. <laughs> it was like, oh, I actually did this in like three hours. Hey, there we go. So I'm actually really good at writing episodes. The issue is I've been procrastinating so much because, guys, you know, if you listen to my show, you know, I'm working on a master's and a job that makes me travel all the time. So I'm never home. Yeah. No, it's totally understandable. And, you know, like I, I've said before, uh, why though is uh, fun for me, but it is not exactly urgent. And anyway, Andrew's working on his thesis too, so you know it wasn't going to get edited. Uh, he's done with that on Friday, actually, so uh, it wasn't going to get edited before then, anyway. <laughs> oh, perfect! So we did we per- we timed it, I timed it perfectly for you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! Yeah, so yeah, it's such a pleasure having or having me here like i like being able to hang out with ben i mean we do it every weekend so (laughs) um so it's it's always great and i get to talk about music that i get to like and all that so that's always uh an upside to all this yeah so with that um i'm gonna say as much as fun as this was i'm gonna be very happy to start getting back to my regular format next month um not entirely sure what I'm going to be doing. I have about, uh, I have several scripts written for, uh, looking at the career of saves the day, but I also might just get back to the records. If I've got that whole setup rebuilt by then, I'm not entirely sure. So be sure to check the show notes so you can listen ahead and, uh, listen to all the billion bands we referenced in this episode. 
And with that said, all that remains is for me to say thank you all for listening and give you my sincerest hope that you all find the answers you seek in your record collections. And I hope that it's Nickelback. No! Oh. <laughs> Thank you.